Two and a Half Admins, episode 62. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, we've got some plugs. The first one is the OpenZFS Developer Summit. Yeah, so this is normally an in-person event with a hard limit of 100 people because of the venue. But again, this year it's online, uh, so it's free to attend uh, for anyone. So if you head over to the website and sign up before November 5th, then you can join in and just see the presentations and uh, see what else is going on. And uh, the second day of the conference is a hackathon. So if you've ever wanted to get started working on ZFS, whether it's just helping with triage of the the bug reports, we're planning to do a bit of a bugathon, uh, or actually start looking at you know how to make minor improvements to the command line interface, or turn your idea for a feature into uh, a prototype. Almost every feature you've seen added to ZFS in the last five or ten years has had some amount of work had done it on one of these hackathons. So check it out. Yeah, that's the eighth and ninth of November, so pretty soon. And your blog post then is uh, understanding top on FreeBSD. Yeah, so the top utility on FreeBSD has a lot of command line flags compared to what you might be used to with just the vanilla top on uh, Linux. And so there's a lot to explain about all the data that shows up on the screen, like what's the difference between active and inactive memory and you know what is wired memory, but also breaking down how it uh, spits out stats about ZFS and, and other things. Okay, well, links to both of those in the show notes. And another thing I wanted to mention is an idea that I've had recently. This is for Linux and BSD and sysadmin jobs. So if you or your company is looking to hire someone, then instead of paying a recruiter loads of money, why not pay us to advertise the job? So get in contact, show at 2.5admins.com and get the word out to thousands of people who work in the industry. Let's start with a bit of feedback. So Jim, last time you said you might be a bit out of date on the Armada controller having automatic updates. Well, Paul got in touch to say, following Jim's comment about automatic update in episode 61, the current version of Omada controller, version 4.4.4, does have this option, and he sent a screenshot. So you really were out of date, Jim. Which is fantastic news, because that was my only gripe about Omada versus Unify. With it actually automatically applying firmware upgrades to the APs now, there is no longer any reason that I prefer any of the, the Unify stack to uh, TP-Link and, and Omada. The TP-Link access points were always a bit cheaper than the uh, Ubiquity access points. Uh, you know, it tended to run somewhere around like 65 and 55, you know, for the uh, UAPs versus the EAPs. But the price difference is much larger than that now. You can't find, I can't find a Ubiquity access point, whether single or in packs, for under $100 a piece. And the TP-Links are still, you know, around $60 each. So what used to be a pretty insignificant savings has now gotten to be noticeable, you know, in a multiple access point deployment. And automatic updates is always good. It's almost a necessity, right? It really is. If you're not security conscious, you should be security conscious. And if you are security conscious, the last thing that you want is, you know, for your systems to get owned because it took you too long to get around to applying a patch. If you don't trust a vendor's upgrade patches, why did you trust the initial version of their software to begin with? Either you're in bed with them or you're not, and they're going to be in a better position than you are to actually patch the software when it needs patching. I remember, Alan, your mantra on TechSnap used to be patch your shit. Now it should be uh, auto-patch your shit. Sure. That is the correct answer. Let's do some news then. The first one is that AMD and Microsoft have released patches for Ryzen slowdowns on Windows 11. 
So there's two separate bugs that were discovered. One is that uh, L3 cache and the CPU is getting slowed down on Windows 11 significantly. And the other is that uh, AMD's preferred core algorithm isn't working properly. Now, if you're not aware, the preferred core algorithm is about uh, modern multi-core CPUs generally have one core that can be clocked a little higher than the rest of them. And major manufacturers, AMD and Intel both, are capitalizing on that now. This has always been true, but it's only fairly recently that CPU vendors have started identifying which is the higher performance core and actually clocking it higher than the other cores to get more performance out of it. Now, once you've identified that and you've got the framework in place to allow you to, you know, overclock that one core higher than the rest... The next step is, you know, prioritizing which tasks go to that core to make the most use out of it. And that's the biggest issue with, you know, what's kind of fallen down so far with Windows 11 and the AMD processors. Depending on your application, you can see up to about a 10 or 15% slowdown uh, without that feature working properly. Mostly you see that in like esports games, you know, that tend to just absolutely peg the living crap out of a single core. And that ends up being your bottleneck, you know, for your frame rate on the game. Now I say esports games specifically because, you know, like a brand new AAA title is not generally going to bottleneck on CPU. It's got a bottleneck on your graphics card, but esports games specifically because of the nature of them, they don't have to be the prettiest thing around, but you know, the, you want to absolutely maximize the skill of the individual players. So a higher frame rate, you know, in this case means that, you know, maybe you get that critical extra frame or two to react to something that another player did. And this ends up coming right back down to bottlenecking on CPU rather than GPU. So losing that 10 to 15% there might mean you go down from 160 frames a second to, you know, 145. It's not going to be something that you're just immediately like, oh, crap, my game is, you know, horrendously slow. But it is measurable and it, it could be significant. Is this just teething problems with Windows 11 then? Is it just a, a sign that maybe we shouldn't all be early adopters? I'd hesitate to say that, you know, oh, we shouldn't be early adopters because neither one of these bugs are the end of the world. I mean, they're, they're minor issues that could cause enough of a performance problem to notice if you were really right on top of your machine. But yeah, it, it certainly falls under the category of, of teething problems and relatively minor ones, really. It's also, um, we don't have enough information to know why these things happened. It's entirely possible that AMD needed to write new chipset drivers for Windows 11. And, you know, they might have flubbed some of this. Microsoft might have done some of it. I suspect the answer lies somewhere in the middle. Lord knows AMD has had to fix their own mistakes, you know, via chipset driver updates in the past. For example, the, you know, the random number generator problem in, uh, you know, the Ryzen 3000 series that actually made it impossible for me to run WireGuard for a few weeks until I figured out a way to work around it. <laughs> Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A and see why Linode has been voted the top infrastructure as a service provider by both G2 and Trustradius. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and their upcoming bare metal release. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, 
allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to lino.com slash 25A, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's lino.com slash 25A. Let's do it then. Let's talk about the new Macs. We talked about the M1 Macs when they were first announced, but now we've got the second generation, which is confusingly the M1 Pro and the M1 Max with an X. So you've got M1 Max Max. I don't know why they named it that, but they're looking pretty impressive from the reviews that I've seen. If you can get past the knot, sure. Yeah, we saw some great <laughs> memes about that today. Like, let's just let's just dive right into it. Let's not leave this elephant in the room unaddressed. Uh, yes, the new round of hardware looks great. The, the first round already looked great. That's all fine and good. But if you get a MacBook Pro right now, it has a notch in it for the camera, which means that, you know, Apple is wrapping the global system menu for the machine, which is not only, you know, to, to cover menu options for Apple's own operating system and Apple's own software, but every app running on the system now has to cope with this non-addressable chunk of display in the center of it. And, you know, I mean, it's not like Apple didn't know that they were doing that. You know, they've, they've written a lot of fixes to try to manage that mess that they created. Um, you know, if you're using an older app that doesn't know about the notch at all, while that app has the focus, Mac OS will actually lock your cursor out of the notch area completely. So like if you try to mouse over where the camera is, it just sort of warps the pointer down underneath it and across to the other side. But unsurprisingly, you know, there are a lot of cases where all of that mess just doesn't quite work right. You know, some apps are always fine with a notch. Some are always locked out and it's okay. But, you know, in other cases, you end up with menu items that are stuck underneath the notch and you can't get to them. Or like, you know, you drop a menu down and you you can't make it go away again because you'd have to click inside the notch, which you can't do. I just want to yell at this thing. Like, why did you do this? Like, I mean... Just put a bezel on the damn thing. It's not that big a deal. It, it reminds me of when Dell decided to try to do the nostril cam on their laptops. You remember that? When they wanted to get rid of the upper bezel? So they put the camera down at the bottom of the screen instead of the top. And like, you know, every conference call when somebody's on one of those things, you just stared straight up their nose. Like at some point, you just have to say, look, the bezel is not that bad. We can have a bezel. Yeah, I've, I've seen people complaining that Certain apps that are using uh, apparently an older version of the the Mac APIs don't know about the notch. And like, if you try to look at something full screen, you'll just have this bit cut out of what you were trying to look at, where the notch would be. And it's like, how long is it going to take for the entire Mac app ecosystem to actually adapt to using an API that understands that it's going to have to avoid using the notch and not put any menu items there and so on? Not too long would be my guess, because that ecosystem seems to move pretty quickly. How much longer is it going to be before we have cameras behind the screen anyway? I mean, that is that is an area of active R&D that has been going somewhere. You know, the idea that you can put the camera behind the display. Yeah, that actually seems like a much more Apple-like solution. I don't even want to call it speculation, you know, just farting around. But like, how hilarious would it be if like next year... Windows laptops are coming out with a camera behind the screen and Apple has gone to all this effort to try to figure out how to deal with this stupid notch, you know, but their operating system, all the apps, update the APIs. And then like, you know, a year later, it's useless because we're never doing that again. (laughs) I can see that for sure. I think what's much more interesting is the graphics performance of these new M1 
Macs and Pros. I still think that's the second most important thing about these. The number one is they're giving us ports again. Because it turns out people need ports on their laptop to make use of them. Shocking. True, yes. So you've got a proper HDMI port, an SD card slot, and MagSafe as well has made a return. Yeah, that was one I was very curious about when it went away, when they went to USB-C. I'm like, but that was the only feature of the Mac that I thought was cool, was the fact that the power cable wouldn't throw my laptop on the floor if I tripped over it. I really wish I had MagSafe on my phone. Uh, you know, I've got a Pixel 2 XL that I'm going to... I'm on the waiting list to buy a Pixel 6 Pro, not because I'm super excited about, you know, blowing a grand on a new phone, but because it's getting to the point where if I don't hold my mouth right all night long, I'll wake up in the morning and my phone won't be charged because the port has just gotten loose and sloppy. I do like that they have kept the USB-C charging though as well. So if you have got existing chargers, they're not useless now. Yes. And I love the fact that I can use the same charger on my ThinkPad and my Mac and don't have to carry two chargers. But all right. The third most interesting thing then is the graphics performance. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, means Mac folks with a laptop can can now finally get uh, NVIDIA level graphics performance, like you know high end NVIDIA level. Yeah, not not the top end, but you know decent sort of RTX thirty sixty ish. It looks like well thirty sixty mobile, but yeah, yeah. The benchmarks they tried a couple different games. I don't know how they decided which games to try. Probably some are limited to what is available on a Mac. <laughs> like Shadow of the Tomb Raider uh, and <laughs> Borderlands 3. Yeah, but we're not talking about gaming necessarily because right. no one buys a Mac to play games or no one should buy a Mac to play games. But for video editing and stuff like that, that's where it looks to be the equivalent of a mobile 3060. Yeah, so the interesting thing is that like, I see uh, mentioned in the uh, Verge article here that rendering a video with Adobe Premiere took 10 minutes, but doing the same video in Apple's Final Cut Pro, which is optimized for the M1 processor, took only four minutes and 16 seconds. But I didn't see much mention of like which types of video offloading their GPU actually supports. Like does it, what kind of an API does it use to do the equivalent of like NVIDIA's NVENC? Well, it has specific part of the SOC to do ProRes. So it's not even using the graphics card. It's got specific hardware for that. So how does it work if you're live streaming with something like OBS from the Mac? Does it actually fall down there compared to having an NVIDIA graphics card? So this is usually the problem when you're talking about Apple stuff, particularly, you know, anything Apple marketing and performance, whatever, because the real answer is Apple does not care what OBS runs like. They do not care. You're already doing it wrong as far as they're concerned. That's not part of like the blessed Apple ecosystem that does things the Apple way. And the way you're intended to use a Mac is the way Apple intended you to use a Mac. And that's the whole thing. And if you're into that, that's great because you've got, you know, this very tightly integrated stack where, you know, everything from application development all the way down to hardware development, like, you know, all the people are talking to each other to do all the things, but it very much narrows what you can realistically do. Because again, the whole system is designed around this idea that, you're doing things Apple's way. And if you're not doing it Apple's way, you're doing it wrong. So I think the ultimate answer is that, you know, if you want to get the really extreme, you know, performance things that you see in Apple marketing, you have to use, you know, this relatively narrow selection of apps that has had the benefit, you know, of this very tight vertical integration with like everybody knows exactly what API they're supposed to use. The API people know, you know, when an application is having an issue with that API and maybe they need to do some work on their end because it's everybody in one big tent. Again, that's great as long as 
they are actually developing stuff for your specific use case. But the minute you need to do things that is not in that model, everything kind of falls off a cliff. These big advantages that you were seeing before largely go away because the biggest thing was not, oh, look at this amazing thing that Apple built. It's better than everybody else's one specific thing. It's, you know, this extremely tight integration, which on the plus side, yes, you can get some amazing results out of it. On the minus side, your use cases are much, much narrower because it's just one group of people doing the one thing. But that's only going to get worse as they build more and more into the SOC with the machine learning stuff and acceleration for various codecs and stuff. It feels like Apple is just taking more and more control over the whole system then. They are. That's what they've always done. That's what they've always wanted to do. That is literally the whole concept with Apple is just you get the Apple stuff and you do the Apple thing and it's amazing and you love it. And if that's not what you're doing, then it's not really (laughs) the best ecosystem. I know already this is angering a lot of people listening, and I'm sorry about that. And I absolutely know there are a lot of people that are, you know, hacking within Apple's ecosystem and designing new and interesting things. But that doesn't mean the platform was really designed for you or the people who are making it really care about you and what you're doing. They don't. This is why you can't find decent documentation on AppleScript. Like if you ever need to write something in AppleScript, you have to go look for random people's blogs. Like the best tip I can give you if you want to know what the current working arguments for any given command or function in AppleScript is, when you Google it, put in minus site colon apple.com because all the stuff that you turn up on apple.com is years outdated and wildly incorrect. Whereas, you know, Joe Bob who loves apple.com's, you know, fan blog is a lot more likely to be up to date and actually working with the current version of macOS that you're actually trying to develop for. It'll be interesting to see if the Adobe apps are able to catch up with the Apple ones or if if they kind of get left behind. I think the Adobe apps absolutely will because Apple and Adobe have always had, you know, quite a tight relationship. Yeah, but we've definitely seen Fun where like, you know, Adobe doesn't work if you're using a case sensitive file system. <laughs> and so I mean, it just seems like I think part of it is just Adobe not putting in enough effort sometimes. Well, I think Adobe probably cares somewhat less about their end of that Faustian bargain than they used to. It used to just be universally accepted wisdom that, you know, if you're Lightroom or Premiere or what have you, you should absolutely be running those on Macs because that was the flagship platform for Adobe Suites. But that's not universally accepted wisdom any longer. You know, people have known for many, many years they can get on quite nicely with Adobe software on Windows machines. And they've also gotten used to the idea that those Windows machines tend frequently to be more powerful for less money than their Mac counterparts were. Now, Apple is starting to tilt that back in the other direction again with their hardware initiatives like the M1. Now it's kind of interesting that they've got the hardware advantage in a lot of situations. But that idea that like you have to have a Mac to run Adobe stuff, that's no longer just out there everywhere. So uh, Adobe kind of has the leeway to lean back a little bit and, you know, be more of a universal application developer rather than developing first for the Mac and, you know, then kind of grudgingly porting to Windows. Right. And the fact that you subscribe to the Adobe Creative Cloud or whatever now, instead of buying this big expensive software package on a regular basis, means that they deliver updates more incrementally instead of in giant, you know, version bumps. Yeah. Plus, they're even targeting the web now. Yeah. But either way, I, I think the important answer still is that, you know, yes, Adobe stuff is, that's kind of your 
platonic ideal for third-party Apple software, really, because Adobe matters to Apple. I don't know how much Apple likes that, but they know that, and they have a vested interest in keeping their relations with Adobe good. There's a lot of history there to draw from, and I, Apple just is not going to care about any random garden-variety developer or shop the way that they do about Adobe. And it's going to be a lot harder to keep in lockstep with Apple's vertical integration and everything else to the degree that even Adobe can, let alone Apple's own developers. I think the really interesting question is going to be how well Blender keeps up. Okay, this episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets, training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com slash two five admins and sign up for a seven day free trial. The on-demand virtual labs mean you can build practical experience with the commands, config, scripts, and everything you need to get the most out of each course. Another standout feature is the accountability coaching service, available to all learners with a subscription, which gives you access to a real person who will help you craft a personalized learning plan and set goals, and will check in with you to keep you accountable. So start your free seven-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash two five admins. It includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your questions for Jim and Alan or any feedback, show at 2.5admins.com. Okay, David says, can you enlighten us on the current state of hibernation on Linux devices? I find many distros disable hibernation, but I cannot conceive why after so much time it is not easier to enable or even auto-detect if hibernation is supported on a device. Have I just been unfortunate and acquired a string of unsupported devices, or is it not as well supported as it is on Windows and macOS? And then he gives a bit of background on his setup, and he also asks Alan, If you can tell me this all works on FreeBSD by just stepping through the installer, I might just switch. I want to hear Alan's FreeBSD answer first. FreeBSD doesn't support uh, (laughs) suspend to disk at all. Only OpenBSD does. Bam! There you have it. One of these days I'm going to ask you what the difference between open and FreeBSD is, but not today. 20 years is the answer. Hibernation just, it's a feature that doesn't get a whole lot of attention It's pretty niche because it's hard to find a situation in which you can actually get your apps up and running again faster after a cold start with hibernation than you could just with a simple boot and reopening your apps and your files. Yeah, in the world of SSDs and NVMe and stuff, just turn it off and turn it back on again. So yeah, storage has gotten faster, but the amount of RAM that you've got to page out to disk has gotten considerably larger. And as operating system boot times themselves have gotten an insane amount of attention and optimization, it just, it has gotten to the point where, you know, pulling the entirety of your RAM off of disk, it's slower than a boot typically and a human clicking things to reopen applications and files. Uh, I'm not saying that hibernation is useless. If you're actively trying to use it, then obviously you like it and you want it. And I'm not telling you not to, but I am telling you it ended up being kind of a niche that wasn't as universally exciting as people thought when it was first introduced. And I just don't think it's gotten that much attention. And honestly, even just simple standby hasn't gotten as much attention as it ought to. 
Matter of fact, I had a laptop just the other day that uh, did not want to wake up from standby and I had to, you know, hard power it off and restart it. Yeah. Like to me, the only time I've ever thought of using hibernation was configuring it so that if my laptop's in standby and the battery's running down over a long time and it's getting low, it would save everything, all of its RAM to disk and, and power off instead. But because the only reason I would ever want to avoid rebooting is because of all of the network connections I have open. And those are all going to go away if I hibernate anyway. So I've never had much use for hibernation. And I think a lot of other people haven't either. And that's why you don't see it getting a lot of love on Linux with the BSDs, just because how often do you actually want to do a full hibernation versus just suspend a RAM temporarily or a reboot? It doesn't matter. Ever since I got my first SSD, that was it. My computer was either on or off. Hibernation was never really about boot time because paging all of your RAM back in wasn't necessarily going to be much faster, maybe more sequential and less random. But Well, yeah, that's exactly it. Sequential. That that was the real draw. When hibernation first became like a thing at all in the early 2000s, I was wildly excited about it because it was pre-SSD, random access times absolutely sucked. And I was like, that sounds amazing to be able to just pull, you know, at the time, you know, like two gigs of RAM sequentially off disk, you know, just ideally as, you know, as cleanly as a DD. That sounded amazing. But the reality has always been it was way slower than, you know, that that dream. And with how slow it was and with the fact, like you mentioned, you know, there's there's a lot of system state that can't necessarily be saved that way because the whole rest of the world didn't hibernate when you did. There are a lot of issues to resolve, and it just it ends up being not that exciting and not getting that much development time to perfect it. I see the appeal of, hey, I can turn my computer off and turn back on. Everything I was doing is still there, but so much of it is network-based now that that is not as helpful. And then the couple of things I really care about, my browser has learned how to restore the 27 tabs I had open when I, after a reboot, and so I've never had much of a use for it. Yeah, application level hibernation is is pretty interesting, which is, you know, basically what you're talking about, like, you know, when you open Chrome and it says, oh, hey, you know, looks like looks like last time you had five windows open and, you know, 180 tabs spread between them. You want me to put all that back the way it was? Yes. And it's, and there it is. Versus hibernating the whole system, even if those Chrome tabs were all you were doing. I mean, you're sitting there staring at the thing for minutes frequently. Yeah, I had never really considered the, performance as a a gain or a a hindrance to hibernation. It was just that, well, if it can't keep the network open, then I don't care. And, you know, that was, I think, the big thing that made a difference was when they started having laptops that could go to sleep, but not all the way so that you could keep the network alive. Uh, I don't know if Linux supports that at all, but I know some Windows laptops have the thing where you can, you know, keep your network connections open while it's almost asleep or, you know, some lighter version of sleep where it will keep your TCP connections open. It's like, because that's all I care about. It's like, I had eight SSH sessions open and I wanted to restore them. But, you know, then we just came up with tools like Mosh and maybe it doesn't matter so much. Again, a problem better solved at the application level. Exactly. Gertz writes to us, as there is Debian slash K FreeBSD, is there a FreeBSD user land on Linux kernel distribution? I just need a host for Docker containers and VMs. Linux is unavoidable as it has better hardware support and can run Docker without virtual machines on small hardware. Think Raspberry Pi 2 and 4. 
So it depends a bit. Like on your average Debian distribution, there are packages like BSD utils and BSD extra utils that will provide a bunch of the BSD versions of the tools. So like the BSD version of nice and re-nice instead of the GNU version and other tools like BSD's hex dump and write command and a bunch of others. Uh, those two packages in particular are the utilities from 4.4 BSD Lite, like before FreeBSD and NetBSD and OpenBSD were a thing, like vanilla BSD versions of the, the text processing tools. And those are in your Debian package repo. Uh, I put a link in the show notes to uh, a GitHub repo called BSD Utils, and it's basically a replacement for GNU Core Utils, so the Core Utils package that is, you know, LS, CD, all the tools you would expect, cat, chmod, chown, cut, paste, dd, df, du, hostname, nohop, sleep, all of those, and you can replace them with the BSD versions. But I guess my question is, what are you trying to accomplish? Like, why do you want the FreeBSD userland if you don't want the FreeBSD kernel? Yeah, I don't get that one either. And I will note that, uh, you know, to anybody who is thinking about installing the BSD versions of, you know, the, the core text processing utilities, uh, you know, AUK, Z, Grip, be careful about that if you've got a really heavy workload with them. Because like AUK in particular, FreeBSD's AUK, along with uh, Mac OS, is, is just horrendously slow compared to the one that ships with Linux distributions. Less so in 13 and later, we replaced our awk with one true awk. Mm. But a lot of them would just have different switches or, or like, like I was saying, I think last week's episode, the sort command on FreeBSD is significantly different command line flags than the Linux version. If you're on FreeBSD, there is the GNU Core Utils package that will install all the Linux tools as G tool names. So like GLS, G sort and so on. And so that they don't interfere with the normal commands, but if you specifically need the, the GNU version for compatibility with a script or for whatever reason. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send in your feedback or questions for Jim and Alan. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.